Hello and welcome to the Tally Ho podcast with me, Eason. And me, Bex. And this is our podcast all about the prisoner. So the Tally Ho is part of our main podcast, which is called Time for Cakes and Ale. And we started episodes of the Tally Ho up last year when the 50th anniversary of the prisoner rolled around. and We wanted to celebrate this iconic show. Yeah, so we had interviews with great sort of prisoner-related guests. We had uh, the guys from Big Finish on, Nick Briggs and Ian Meadows. We had prisoner experts Rick Davey, Rob Fairclough and Fiona Moore. And we also had chats with film director Alex Cox, who's written a book about the prisoner, and Michael Pickwode, the production designer on the 2009 miniseries. And we thought that rather than just limit the 50th anniversary celebrations to that week back in, uh, well, the end of September 2017, it was always our plan to continue our interest in classic TV show The Prisoner by going episode by episode, which is what we're going to start to do with this episode today. Yeah, so if you want to get hold of our episodes, you can find them on our main Time for Cakes and Ale podcast feed. And you can find Time for Cakes and Ale in all the usual places you find podcasts. So it's on iTunes, it's on Stitcher, it's on Podcast Addict, whatever app it is used to get your podcast from. Yeah, and the easiest place to find out about when our new episodes are out will be to uh, follow us on Facebook and Twitter, where we'll always be posting updates about the newest episodes, our upcoming episodes as well. And if you do that, you'll also find out about all the other things we're doing as part of Time for Cakes and Ale. Yeah, so you can track us down on Facebook and on Twitter at TFCAA, where you'll get notified whenever there's something new coming out. So although last year we had daily episodes of the Tally Ho for the 50th anniversary, our format for the upcoming series of episodes is actually going to be fortnightly, going episode by episode. So starting today, we're going to do Arrival, and then every two weeks we're going to put out a new episode about the next episode in The Prisoner. And I think we're going to plan to follow the UK broadcast order, yeah. but I'm sure at some point it'll all derail and we'll we'll maybe jump around a little bit or at least start discussing things that happen later on in the series. Yeah, the question of episode order and what's the right order to watch them in is, is a very long and complicated one. But we're going to go with UK broadcast order. Yeah, so what we'd love is for you to kind of follow us along on this journey as well. So we've watched The Prisoner several times. We're big fans of the show. We hope that some of you are watching along with us having seen it already. We also hope that maybe you've heard about The Prisoner, you're coming to it for the first time, and you'd like to kind of have the experience of watching along with other people as well. And what we're going to be doing is talking about each episode um, doing a little bit of a recap covering what happens, but also maybe talking about what we think is interesting in a particular episode, the themes that we think are kind of cool or relevant. And I suppose it has to be said, we'll probably talk about some of the things we don't like as well. <laughs> <laughs> and for quite a lot of the upcoming episodes, we're going to be having special guests on as well to talk about the episode, whether it's an episode they were involved in or an episode that's a particular favourite of theirs. And we'd love you to join us too on this journey. So please do subscribe to the podcast, uh, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, uh, go to the website and leave us um, a comment if you want on any of the episodes. It's really great to get in touch and we really hope that we'll have the experience of watching The Prisoner Along with you, potentially for the first time or the hundredth time. <laughs> so I suppose we should just crack on with episode one. Yeah. Arrival. I suppose you're wondering what you're doing here. It had crossed my mind. What's it all about? Sit down and I'll tell you. 
So before we get into the episode itself, we thought it'd be helpful to provide a bit of context about the series The Prisoner, particularly for people who might not be that familiar with it, in terms of some of the people who are involved behind the scenes, how the show came about, and particularly some of the work that they had done before that. So it was made in the late 60s, and prior to The Prisoner, there was a very, very successful TV series called Danger Man. It was aired in the US under the name Secret Agent. And it starred Patrick McGowan. He played a secret agent named John Drake. It ran for four seasons. It was hugely popular. Very big ratings in the UK. It sold all over the world. It was probably the first British show that actually became successful in the States. And they could have just carried on making it forever. But Patrick McGowan, who was the star of the show... He just decided he didn't want to do it anymore. I guess it didn't interest him. He's, he's a, a fascinating, fascinating guy. And evidently, whatever it was about Danger Man that wasn't satisfying to him, he wanted to do something that was a, a bit um, had a bit more depth to it. And so he just walked away from Danger Man. He said to uh, Lou Gray, the head of ITC, the production company that made it, I'm not doing it anymore. He was like the highest paid actor on TV in Britain at that time. It's a a remarkable thing to just walk away from the thing that had made you famous. It had made him so famous he'd been offered the role of James Bond and then turned it down because he didn't want to do it. (laughs) He said to Lou Grade, who, as I said, was the, the head of ITC, which was a production company that was really dedicated to making really high quality TV shows with really good production values, lots of action, lots of excitement, things that would sell well around the world. And he said to him, I want to make this show The Prisoner. He'd been working on the idea with uh, George Markstein, who was also one of the, the kind of brains behind the series. And he explained a little bit about the idea to Lou Grade, and Lou Grade just said, yeah, fine, okay, here's the money, go and do it. (laughs) It's, It's remarkable to think now that anyone would have that much power to say that you could just go and do something like this or that something could just get off the ground without a billion focus groups happening to (laughs) say whether or not a show should get made and everyone interfering. Um, But he believed that McGoon was such a star that he would carry whatever it was that he wanted to do. And so The Prisoner was born. And the main character in The Prisoner, he's never given a name. He's referred to as number six or never referred to by name by any characters who don't think of him as number six. And it's it's not John Drake from Danger Man, but there are bizarre little points, almost kind of in-jokes, that seem mm. to say that it is John Drake from Danger Man. There's a picture, isn't there, that's yeah. used in there? Yeah, so I think it's, like, most famously, it's the uh, shot used in uh, Free For All and even his um, his ID card. I mean, those are the publicity shots from, uh, from Danger Man as John Drake. So I think those are, you know, they're... They're kind of a bit jokey. I think you can almost imagine McGowan thinking, well, I'm going to put these in because it's going to make people at least discuss whether or not this is John Drake. But I I think, I mean, having watched the show many times, you know, it's it's strange because although there are some strong similarities, this was an era when actually, especially in the ITC brand, just as an example, there were lots of actors popping up in shows playing different characters anyway. So it's not an unusual thing. For characters to recur in shows uh, potentially as similar types of character. I think in this case, you know, you get the impression that maybe McGowan was thinking, well, this Danger Man thing, it was it was fun to begin with, but it wasn't the thing he wanted to do. 
but maybe there were elements of it that he liked he probably thought you know what i can it'll be interesting to portray potentially a sort of high level secret agent style character but it's it's very intentional that he doesn't talk about number six ever being john drake and i know that's in contrast to george markstein who said well yes he was john drake and this kind of rages on and there are arguments for and against but i think i i still like to view the prisoner as its own entity it's such a unique thing that Mm. it seems weird to tie into the universe of danger man yeah but yeah i can i can see why that would happen certainly there are characters that pop up so potter appears in one in one episode and it's an interesting question that that does hang over it and there is no ultimate answer you know whereas danger man was a secret agent this is you know a show also about you know literally a secret agent (laughs) um, but they're not the same yeah if you put yourself in the shoes of the audience watching this back in the late 60s for the very first time it it must have seemed very strange because as i said it was you know it's such a massively successful show and you know he was probably the most famous actor on British television at that time, who was also still being a secret agent, but it wasn't John Drake. <laughs> but he kind of looked like John Drake. He's a journalist, it's not John Drake. So that's that's the the, the sort of context of, of how it got made. It, it must have been a massive gamble for a lot of people involved, um, not just McGowan, to um, to end Danger Man and do something like this that was so out there so unusual and it it was unusual not just in the concept of it but really unusual in the way that they executed it as well which really puts apart from a lot of other shows that were around at that time yeah i think every aspect of it is designed to wrong foot the audience and it starts with the very beginning of arrival and it continues well indeed it escalates all the way through the series uh, through to fallout i think ultimately we've ended up with 17 remarkable episodes which tell a story but one which sort of defies a straightforward analysis and certainly i don't think in these episodes we're going to be trying to come up with some grand explanation of what the prisoner is about i think it's just a show that we are really passionate about because we really really enjoy it and i think just as it would have been when it was originally aired back in 67 over here you know it's a show that you can come to at any time has tremendous relevance today it's a timeless show and certainly the new blu-ray release from network it i don't think this show has ever looked better so i think you know if you're watching along if you can get your hands on some blu-ray versions of uh, the prisoner because it just looks absolutely fantastic yeah it looks like it could have been filmed yesterday yeah. it's, it's beautiful so i think we should crack on and make our way to the village i will not make any deals with you I've resigned. I will not be pushed, filed, stamped, indexed, briefed, debriefed, or numbered. My life is my own. So the episode begins with McGowan driving his famous Lotus S7 car 120C. It's an iconic car driving through uh, London and going into the underground car park and going seemingly to his place of work where he famously resigns from his uh, job, an unknown job, but you know, hinted at later on as being you know, some kind of high-level government post. The guy at the other side of the desk is George Markstein, who <laughs> clearly is looking at him and probably is unclear about how long their relationship is going to last <laughs> on this series. Um, you know, but it's completely wordless. You know, it's an iconic opening, which, which tells you everything you need to know about this premise, because he, you know, he gets in uh, to the office, he does his meaningful walk down the corridor. You see he's a, you know, he's a serious guy, he knows what he's doing, and he's 
going there with with such intent that you know that whatever the decision is that's driven uh, this resignation it's something very serious and, so, and it almost comes across especially with what we know about Magoon as something which is deeply dependent on his own sort of moral code he you know there's something that's not right and this is what he's going to do about it so he leaves he's in his car he's driving back to his house which is uh, number one Buckingham Place he goes into his house and we see that he's uh, being tailed the whole time by a black car which I think is a hearse yeah it's very it? ominous yeah and there's uh, the guy who's driving it is a guy in a top hat we see that motif a bit later on in the episode as well but he's in his uh, he's in one of the rooms he's kind of rifling through his stuff getting everything packed and it's clear that he's done with everything he has a suitcase he sort of slams this picture of a I don't know, like a palm tree on, you know, on top of everything. And he's like, yeah, that's what I'm going to do. That's where I'm going. Yeah, most generic holiday destination. (laughs) (laughs) Just palm trees, beach, doesn't matter where it is. Exactly. But he's just getting out of here. And he knows, you know, he's done. And sort of in the kerfuffle of everything, uh, it cuts to the door. And you see through the keyhole smoke, he kind of loses consciousness. It kind of goes a bit all blurry and he seems to pass out. And then what happens is he wakes up he seems fine he's dressed he gets out of bed and he's in his own room and he goes to the window and that's when uh, he looks outside and first we see his reaction to what to what's outside but you know we see the view and we realize that he is no longer in central london but he is now in the village or as we know it port marion (laughs) It's, it's such a wonderful opening sequence because with the exception of the final two episodes of the prisoner there's no long-running story that needs you to have watched from one week to the next. And this wordless opening, it sets up all the backstory you could ever need to just sit down and watch an episode of The Prisoner. You can sit down and watch episode 10, having never watched any before, and the opening credits would tell you... It tells you that he's some kind of government agent, that he's resigned from his job, that he's been abducted by forces unknown... You don't need to know exactly what the job was. We don't know who's abducted him, but he gets knocked out and he wakes up in this mysterious village. And that's all the context that you need to know. It's the perfect setup to the show. And it's one that can be repeated in the opening credits every single time. And it tells you everything you need to be able to just access the core concept of the show. And as the title card comes up, which just says The Prisoner, we realise that you know, that's what this show is going to be about. You know, he is going to be a prisoner in this new location and it's highly likely that he's not going to be getting out anytime <laughs> soon. But what is really interesting is, uh, going back to the idea that you can reuse this opening again and again, it's the fact that every episode begins with him looking out from that window. You see the look on his face, he looks out at the village and it's a cycle which is going to repeat again and again, but it it, it immediately reveals not just to him as a character but also the viewer that he's going to open his eyes to the same thing every time but it's always going to be slightly different and it's going to be unfamiliar and it's designed to not only perturb him but also wrong foot the audience as well into thinking they're going to get something formulaic um, but actually it's going to go in a different direction with every story. One thing I really love about the opening is that shot where the the little card with his face kind of typed X's over it (laughs) And it comes down this bizarre sort of chute that comes along this massive filing cabinet and then gets dropped into a file that says resigned. And it's just this such a bizarre shot for just one tiny little moment of a show. But it, it sets that scene that there is 
that this automation, this bureaucracy, it isn't even a person doing it, it's a faceless bureaucracy. It's a machine that is dropping him into the resigned pile. There's, there's something very sinister about that. Just the idea, I mean, I mean, now you've said it in terms of the faceless bureaucracy behind these uh, things, it just reminds me of uh, films like Brazil. Oh. And I know there are so many things that were directly and probably indirectly inspired by what happened in The Prisoner. You know, films, TV over you know over the following decades, but that that moment encapsulates so many things that you that you know were so wonderfully fleshed out in films like Brazil, where they're dealing with the same kinds of ideas. I also love the fact that because the show got sold around the world and the draw that says "resigned" on it, I think in some of the international ones they replace it with "resigned" in other languages, <laughs> <laughs> just so it's really clear what's happened. Because that draw that tells you he has resigned, this is the setup to the show. It's so crucial; you had to do that. And building on, I think, what has to be one of the best, you know, first episodes of a TV show ever. You realise that the first what four minutes or so mm. are completely wordless mm. and yet in that time you have the setup of the show but also the scenes of him waking up in the village I mean you get so much out of it just watching him wandering around kind of taking a looking around at, you know at the different buildings a strange mix of multicolored houses and mishmashes of Mediterranean architecture which kind of completely wrong foot you in where you think this place might be he looks completely disorientated and i think as a viewer you become completely disorientated as well so he, he looks up the clock tower and he thinks he sees someone up there but when he gets up there there's no one there yeah everything about it is you know it's it's already playing with perception you think you've seen something you're not sure and it's designed to maybe continue this feeling that you know he's just woken up he's in a daze and he's looking around and just nothing makes sense. You know, he is so lost and the viewer is equally lost as well. It's never a situation where the viewer knows more than Magoon does. Yeah, and the lack of dialogue forces you to really concentrate on the wonderful environmental sounds they've got in it. So you, you get the sort of echoing footsteps as he's going up into the clock tower. Then when the bell tolls, it's really jarring. It's like everything is intended to freak you out, freak him out, even just the the sounds that are going on around him. Four minutes in, we finally get the first line of dialogue when he finds a cafe where um, a waitress is setting up outside and she says, we'll be open in a minute. And it's just such a, a mundane, everyday, you know, it's, it's so friendly. Oh, we'll be open in a minute. But it's that mix of the very sinister and the very mundane, everyday, really clashing together. And it's a real hallmark of The Prisoner, and it's something that we're going to come back to later on and in future episodes. It, it's that sense that there is something not right underneath what on the surface is just a perfectly normal interaction between two people, but there are no normal interactions in the village. It's probably sort of too early to you know, to bring this up. Those of you who listen to our podcast, we're big fans of David Lynch and, and Twin Peaks and the world he's created as well, and... I think there's something really familiar in The Prisoner that you see reflected in things like uh, Twin Peaks in Blue Velvet, which is this idea that you have these seemingly idyllic environments and there's something going on underneath the surface. It's always a front for something very strange and, and weird that's happening. And I think it just it just adds to the feeling that he's in a really 
unfamiliar place it's it's designed to to seem comforting and seem like something he should be able to easily interact with and fit in with but in reality it's very subversive and it's a very strange and sort of unforgiving place and as he wanders off we get that first indication of sort of the village styling and, and technology he tries to make a call you know picks up the receiver and says, well it's a cordless phone which is kind of unusual i mean it's you know it's it immediately tells you that you're in a slightly different version of the world as you know as we know it in terms of you know the contemporary stylings that he's used to you know he wants to make a call and they ask you know what number he's trying to call but reference him as a number as well and he, and you know obviously without that information he's very confused and they hang up and he's just left but then he wanders you know around again and he finds that that bizarre sort of information mm. um booth or sort of i don't know what you'd refer to it as it's like you know you know when you're in a theme park and you get those giant maps yeah. and you can kind of press a thing and it tells you where, where yeah. you want to go it looks like one of those yeah it's it's very bizarre but it like at that point you realize that he is he is stuck in a place which is within the limits of this map and you know there are strange strange locations and things listed on the side and he calls a taxi and i think that's the first time we get a real sense of how iconic the styling of the village citizens will actually be because uh, the woman pulls up in the mini moke uh with the the red and the white striped jumper and mm. at that point you realize that this is just completely trippy and weird yeah, so she speaks to him first in English, and then when he doesn't respond, she speaks to him in French. And it's it's wrong-footing everything again, because he, he's even more confused that someone's speaking to him in French, and he demands to know, why did you speak to me in French? He says, oh, well, you know, French is international. I thought you might be Polish or, or maybe Czech. And it was at the time, middle of the Cold War, that's very significant. Mm. And it just puts doubt in your mind as to who exactly is behind the village who's actually running things yeah and as he gets in for his very very short uh, taxi <laughs> ride which obviously doesn't take him very far because the taxis are all local he gets out and we get one of the most iconic phrases of all time as uh, the taxi driver turns to him and says be seeing you mm. so we recently watched a documentary called in my mind by chris rodley and it's a documentary about the prisoner, but also about Patrick McGowan and a series of interviews that were had with him. And one of the really remarkable things that they've got in this documentary is they've got footage that a tourist took in Port Marion, where a lot of the external um, work was filmed for the prisoner. And it's basically a, a tourist filming everybody filming the show. And it's in particular this taxi ride. So you can see the footage of him getting in the taxi and going around that you actually get in the TV series. And then at the same time, you can see the footage that this tourist shot in which you can see all the crew and loads of tourists standing around watching it get yeah. filmed. And it's mind-bending, having seen that, to watch this episode again. And it gives you the absolute effect that there is nobody else around. And yet you know that standing just behind the camera with several dozen tourists gawping at everything that was going yeah. on. It's really cool as well, cause it's, because during In My Mind, you see them do a wonderful job of matching up the uh, the footage that was taken by a tourist there with the actual footage we see. And it's seamless. Mm. And I just can't imagine that happening today. You know, I mean, this was really... Well, it's interesting because obviously they, they don't reveal until the very last episode that the 
location of the village in terms of where it was shot was Port Marion, mm. but it was a it was a holiday destination. I think a lot of people must have been thinking, "What the hell is going on? There's something you know being filmed." And they would have realised it's Patrick McGowan, mm. and that must have been very weird. I mean, they must have known him as the dude in Danger Man, and yeah. thought, you know, what's going on here? Although he had shot a couple of episodes of Danger Man on location in Port Marion, it was interesting that he he chose to use this as a location, but at the same time. You know, it was shot, as you say, whilst functioning still as a tourist destination with all these people around. And you don't see them. You don't really see shadows. You don't you don't see his eyeline break where all of a sudden there <laughs> must be those people just, you know, staring at him, you know, maybe taking pictures. Um, and we know that must have been the case because obviously somebody was filming it, you know, just off camera the whole time as a tourist. No, we only have local maps, sir. There's no demand for any others. So he then makes his way into the general store. And I love the fact that it's literally just called general store. Hmm. Like, in the same way that the taxis, the number plates are literally just taxi, and they all say that. (laughs) Um, And even inside the store, all the canned goods and everything is just generic village branding on it. There's there's nothing external, there is only the village. And the shopkeeper is talking to a lady, I think it's an Italian, and as soon as they realise that he's there, they start speaking to each other in English. It's the first moment when you realise that the people themselves might be hostile to him. I think up until that point, it's un, it's unclear what's going on. I mean, there clearly are people in this village. Not many, but there are a few at least at this point. But that's, a again, it wrong foots you completely. You realise that as much as he's trying to work out what's going on, everyone else seems to know who he is or why he's there. Yeah. And there's that wonderful bit where he wants a map. It's just for the village. He asked for the bigger colour map that's more expensive. It's literally just a bigger colour map of the village. Um, and the, the shopkeeper is almost kind of playing with him at one point. And I love the bit where he says, I look forward to the pleasure of your custom. And immediately tells you that the people around him are not expecting him to ever leave this place. Yeah. That shopkeeper knows he's going to be back in there buying food yeah. the next day and the day after that and the day after that. There's something very, very wrong. And I think this idea that everything is local and I mean that was that was played to the hilt in things like the League of Gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it is strange how they immediately create such a claustrophobic environment. It feels like everything is just you know, it's all encompassing. He is in the village, the village is everything, and you know, he's been taken away from where he was before. And everyone's in on it except for him. Yeah. Uh, and and the kind of very sinister joke with the two maps also gives you a crucial piece of information, which is that he is literally surrounded by mountains, mountains, mountains and the sea, mm. and there is nowhere to go. I suppose as an aside, I mean, it's also interesting to think that, and I can't imagine that, I mean, I've never seen it like that, but to, but to remember that this was originally broadcast in black and white. Yeah. I mean, already we're in a world where everything is bright and primary colours and you know everything is very bold and brash i think it's really interesting that actually to have seen this in black and white must have been a very well i think it must have you know portrayed the same meaning Mm. but it must have been a real step change when people first got the chance to see it in color having watched it in black and white i've only obviously had the chance to see it as a as a color show yeah because it would have been broadcast in the uk in black and white but i think they they would have wanted to film in color because if they were selling it internationally and the fact it's shot on film as well really shows. Yeah. And that's probably helped its sort of final restoration now on, mm. on Blu-ray. I mean, it looks absolutely incredible. And of course, the shopkeeper leaves him with the classic hand gesture for be seeing you. <laughs> and then outside, we get the first of many, many wonderful Tannoy announcements voiced by 
the wonderful Fenella Fielding. And this is a recurring thing that happens all the way through the series. These cheery, almost sort of holiday park style PA announcements. Like sort of, good morning residents, it's going to be a lovely day. Completely at odds with the feeling of actually being there. And he heads back to his home and I, I love the way that outside his house, not only does it say number six, as not just the house but also him, uh, and then underneath that, the sign is hanging that says private, presumably to distinguish it from public buildings like General Store <laughs> and Labour Exchange and so on. But it's just the fact that they have that word hanging outside the house, and yet he knows and we know that there is nothing private about that house. He's being watched, he's being listened to, there is no privacy. You can hang the word on the door, but it doesn't mean anything. Yeah, I think it's it's the indication as well that the village is playing with him. And I like the fact that over the course of the series, number six starts playing with them as well. Mm. So as he returns home, the phone rings and we get this mysterious call. So his phone actually says number six. There's no way of dialing, I think, on it. It's just, you know, that's him. That's how they get in touch with him. He picks it up and it's a mysterious man on the other end who refers to himself as number two, who can be found in the Green Dome. So he sets out of his house to find this you know, this obvious building which is there reaches the door marked number two goes inside with one of those um like all the village doors seem to have these automatic openings and uh, inside we have the first appearance of uh, angelo muscat as uh, as the butler yeah this is also the first point where you get the nursery rhyme musical motif starting to appear in the score uh, it's pop goes the weasel um, again, it's just wrong-footing you. Why Why is a nursery rhyme coming up in here? I think later on in the episode, there's the boys and girls come out to play as mm. well. It's just really unnerving and, and adds to this sort of otherworldly, almost kind of fairy tale aspect of this strange village. Yeah, and obviously specifically Pop Goes the Weasel has very specific relevance much later on in the series. It's interesting that they sow those seeds now in just the motifs. Subtle ones, but they're in your head. And I think you... You reflect back on them 15 or 16 episodes down the line. And the intro of number two is probably one of the best character introductions ever, hasn't it? I mean, it's only the first number two, but it's it's still just number two. Yeah, I think this is uh, this is Guy Dolman mm. uh, as number two. And it's, it's great. You see him, uh, you see number six walk towards the door. You see this purple glow on his face as the doors open. And at the far end, you just, I mean, this is bizarre. It's like in this little village, but actually everything seems so spacious and strange in its architecture inside it looks so futuristic there's a giant screen on the wall and you see there's there's almost like a control panel and at the very end you see the rising up seat which is that kind of ball shaped thing which he's sitting inside it rotates around like there you know you see this mysterious character who's it's odd it's you know for such a futuristic setting he just looks like you know an everyman in some bizarre respect he's just a person who's dressed you know in a jacket with a scarf and it's not like there's anything particularly threatening about his presence other than the fact that he's decked out in sort of village colors and he really just exudes everything that we've seen as oppressive in the village so far you know the stripes the penny farthing logo on the badge i mean he he is a he's like the the archetypal village member as it were. and it's clear that's how the the number two character seems to be how they've risen to that position. Yeah, he also sort of looks and sounds like a very generic kind of upper civil service mm. type person. Um, and the way that he, he reacts with number six as well. 
and it's clear as they start to chat that you know number two knows exactly why number six uh, is there and they raise this issue which becomes a recurring theme throughout the series which is the issue of number six's resignation so whoever these people are who run the village they have abducted him from his life in order to get information out of him but also they've sequestered him away in the village because they they know that what he knows is very important and it can't just be out there and they don't understand why he has resigned and certainly it seems like a a place where under the guise of it being a very gentle friendly environment in a very artificial way they can put number six through his paces and really try and break him and see if they can get the answers they need almost by being so calm and serene does it make it you know as oppressive as it actually is yeah and they start to reveal that they know almost everything about him they know what he's going to want for breakfast it's already there it rises up (laughs) through the floor they have photographs from his life and this is where it gets really quite meta because some of the details about his life and indeed the detail that number six adds about the time of his birth those are actually Patrick McGowan's himself Hmm. and it's it's a question that we'll probably come back to towards the end of the series about the extent to which there are sort of heavily not autobiographical but very personal things going on in this series for Patrick McGowan and that he added this personal information in about this character who in the scripts was only ever a referred to as P, hmm. which they say stood for prisoner, but of course could also just stand for Patrick. Yeah. It's very telling in some way, but also it's completely impenetrable as well. <laughs> <laughs> number two takes number six on a little helicopter ride to see the full extent of the village. And presumably also to show that there's nowhere to go beyond yeah. the bounds of the village. There's lots of things he says during that uh, flight, however brief, which are, you know, they're subtly very very threatening (laughs) yeah he mentions the fact that they've got their own graveyard among many other nice things like a social club Mm. and an old people's home it seems they mention that as well because that that, you know that that does feature later on and uh, when he says there are some people you might know here as well again all these things are things which feature later on but actually part of the plan so it's almost like they give they give him hints that only make sense after the fact yeah almost um and certainly this number two, he's not long for this episode, you know, <laughs> but he is there to really uh, unsettle uh, the prisoner. Yeah. And those aerial shots of the village of Port Marion, they must have been so striking to people watching it, most of whom wouldn't have known what Port Marion was yeah. or where it was. And the filming location isn't revealed until the very final episode yeah. of the the series fallout i think all of the credits here just say filmed on location and at mgm studios and, yeah. yeah it's just the architecture it must have looked so startling it must have left the audiences wondering where on earth this was yeah. it just adds to the ambiguity and it's nice that as he's flying over you you really get a sense of sort of all the different very iconic aspects of of uh, village attire you get the umbrellas, you get the people with the capes, you get the hats. You know, it's incredible. It's a completely different place. And it's it's familiar, yet completely out of this world. Um, so again, it, it feels like some weird, trippy 60s place. But you're not, you know, it, it still can't be placed in any way. So, yeah, I think it's just remarkable how, you know, how the production designer was, was so far ahead of its time in being able to do so much with just one location. 
you really make it feel like you're in another place yeah so they they land the helicopter again yeah and i think it's it's one of those things i always notice it in tv shows but you know when you get like uh stunt people mm. who who look very different <laughs> to uh, <laughs> uh to the people who uh you know who they're meant to be sort of standing for i love the fact that the shot of the helicopter when they're about to take off and when they land is some really tall person <laughs> with the hat and the cape who's you know they're taking the place of the butler who you know obviously is is a very short stature it's like the you know so you've got this really really tall skinny pilot who they're using the long shots who's the actual pilot and then you know on the close-ups it's angela muscat who's like the complete opposite of that i love i love these moments where you see them and you realize you know it takes you out of it a little bit but it's great to watch these things and realize you are just watching a tv show <laughs> <laughs> So as they go for a walk through the village, you start to meet characters who are going to sort of recur later on. So you meet the Admiral who's sitting there playing chess by himself. Uh, You see a lot of people wearing those strange wooden glasses with Mm. the the kind of slats in them. I desperately want a pair. (laughs) I also want to play Kosho, but that's another story. (laughs) And they they wander through to what is almost kind of the town square, the main square where the fountain and everything is. And you see, as you say, all the different umbrellas, the costumes. There's the guy with the penny farthing who just wheels it away. There are the guys in uh, top hats that visually resemble the top-hatted man in the black car who was mm. following him in the opening credits. Yeah. It's interesting that they do have these, you know, the penny farthing imagery throughout. Because I think, although there's a close-up as, you know, as he's walking around and you see somebody pushing one out of the way, I think they're only ever pushed around. They're there almost like a, you know, they are literally being used as a visual reminder of where he is. They're never ridden around, which everyone else is on normal bicycles. But they, you know, there are these penny farthings all over the place. It's very strange. And the fact that they go to this old people's home as well, again, it's part of that threatening thing as well. There's a sense of, you know, you aren't going to leave. People come here and they, they stay here. Um, and as an aside, I mean, I've read this in a few places, but George Markstein, who was sort of the co-creator at this point, um, so him and David Tomlin are the credited co-writers, but I think you know at the same time this is very much a McGowan story and script as well. In terms of the actual mythology around what's going on with the village, a lot has been said about Markstein being somebody who was aware when he was a journalist of this place in Scotland. I think it was called Invalair or something, which was you know a retirement home for spies, and you can mm. and you can almost imagine that being. You know, obviously a great idea for a story, you know, and used as a village, but also it's a wonderful way to put, you know, the reality of a place like that into popular culture and then pretend it's just part of fiction when reality was that, you know, Marxine knew this place was real. And it was a place that potentially did function like the village does here, which is you take people who have very important information, you sequester them away, and either it's for their protection or it's to get information out of them and keep them away from other people. Uh, so I love the fact that there's a there's an element of you know a real village that may have existed uh, somewhere it really adds to the mythology of the show you know, i think it's also one of the things which was a very important addition from mark steen as well i can imagine mcgowan having the idea of, of the village but i think the you know the the texture of it may have come you know a lot from mark steen the number of other really iconic village 
sights and sounds that we mm. get here. You get the sound of the taxis that kind of do 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 as they go through the village. Um, you get more tannoy announcements, which come with a warning: there might be showers later. <laughs> It's, it's, it's so sinister for something so insignificant. Yes, and I think that it's important always to remember that as visually stunning as The Prisoner was, a lot was in the sound design as well. I mean, it's just so disorientating. And, and yet every sound you hear, it's almost like a reminder that you're in the village, which can be a tremendously dispiriting thing. <laughs> I think if you're there, it's, it's there to constantly be drummed into you. The messages are all very automated and... It's there to break him. It's wonderful. Can we uh, talk about the blue skies? (laughs) Because there's something... And I've noticed it even more on the Blu-ray because the colours are all so beautiful. You'll notice that sometimes there's a a sort of close-up reaction shot of number six and he's got a brilliant, beautiful, bright blue sky behind him. And that's it. And yet the next moment, it'll be a, a sort of wide shot of him walking through the village and the skies are grey, <laughs> completely grey, um, just kind of like a, a flat, pale skies above. And you know from where he is that if you put a camera in front of him, there wouldn't be sky behind him. There would be buildings and trees behind him. And so you know that that must have been shot on a, a series of reaction shots yeah. done in a studio somewhere months later. And it's just so strange to go from this, this beautiful blue sky to then grey skies above yeah. as we're walking around. Um, it, it's it's so interchangeable. I mean, you can't do anything about the weather in Wales. <laughs> There's nothing that you can do about it. Sometimes it's going to be blue skies, sometimes it's going to be grey. Yeah, because I think they, they shot sort of all the Port Merion stuff right at the beginning for the first few episodes in one go, and they went back again a bit later on. But, you know, it's that... It's, clear and it becomes clearer throughout the series that some episodes were really pieced together and it you know it's interesting to think in terms of how you put a show together like this where actually there is so much that comes out of the location shoots and then so much is actually done in reality on you know on sound stages after you know months afterwards it's wonderful how they put this thing together but you know if you watch loads of tv you kind of look at this and you and you can you can kind of see the seams but it doesn't make it any less impressive. But it is wonderful that that now on you know on the new versions of a um, of the Blu-ray and things like that. I mean, the colours, like you say, are so vivid <laughs> that it's just even more jarring to see these things. Um, I mean, it's not a criticism of the show at all. You know, it's just how it was made. But it is interesting that you keep having these uh, these uh, insert shots all the time. <laughs> you know, of either Magoo or other characters just shot against these wonderful blue matte backgrounds all the time. <laughs> And then as he walks around the fountain and there's lots of other people just milling about, there's a brass band playing. Number two is talking to him via a megaphone and yet nobody else is reacting to the fact that mm. they're having this very loud conversation in public. Everyone's just greeting him, lovely day, mm. uh, and carrying on about their business. And then you get the first appearance of Rover. It's such a wonderful creation. It's so simple and yet so unfathomable. But what even is Rover? Is it alive? Is it a machine? Is it organic? We we never find out. Mm. You never find out. And it makes it more horrifying that you don't know what it is. It bubbles up from the, the fountain and you have that effect where you see it on top of the water and then it's on top of the, mm. the building. And it was just however they could do it with the camera and two, and two, two balloons. 
Um, and it, it comes down and number two shouts to stop. Everybody stops. Stock still. Unmoving. Apart from this one guy who starts freaking out and running away. And Rover just bounds after him and presumably kills him. It seems mm. like he kills him, suffocates him. But but you don't know. Is he suffocating? Is it poisonous? You just don't know what mm. it is. And it's this moment of pure horror because not only does this person's death come from out of nowhere and for seemingly no reason and we can presume that the the powers that be at the village had a reason for wanting to kill this person or maybe they didn't or maybe rover kills people who try to run away from it i think it's functioning also as a demonstration of power uh, on behalf of the people who are running the village because actually there's no indication that this person uh, has done anything wrong. He freaks out. But actually it's interesting that the others maybe know not to freak out. They know mm. to do what they're told. But he does. And actually it's almost like saying we can take out anyone here. Yeah. You know, And if you try and run, this is what happens. If you conform, if you stay where you are, you'll be fine. And you will only ever have to see the effect of Rover. You will never experience it. From a technical point of view, I think... A lot has been written about, I think originally Rover was, you know, it wasn't going to be a weather balloon. It was like some bizarre go-kart kind of thing, I think. And then it was like a tank, a mini tank and all these different things. And they all kind of failed, much like the first attempts at at the shark in Jaws. I mean, it just wasn't working. (laughs) And in this case, they had to come up with something very quick. And they came up with a weather balloon, which they saw in the sky. And then I think they ended up getting loads of balloons in different sizes. And you see these things. I mean... It's kind of a happy accident, I think, that they they ended up with this giant weather balloon being Rover. But, my God, as something which is just absolutely terrifying, it's this blob that bounds around. It's huge. And yet, at times, it's small as well, I suppose. (laughs) um, but, But it has no sort of ability to do anything other than just to kind of chase people and and kind of squash them or to suffocate them yeah again it's just it can do loads of things for something which is so simple and i think that's an interesting parallel with the village it's it's a simple straightforward place but actually it's very threatening every aspect of it is threatening but you don't you don't see it and maybe that's what uh number six you know does know about the village He, he you know he can sense that on the surface it's a very tranquil peaceful looking place but that's that's just an appearance uh you know underneath as you were saying earlier it's a it's a threatening place there's a fear that runs this um this place as well yeah and the noise that rover makes that growling that is it's simultaneously like an animal growling but also like a machine grinding it's, it's horrible and it just adds to the the sort of terror of it but what what makes it i think the most horrible is that this apparent killing happens in broad daylight in front of dozens of people and not only does nobody do anything about it nobody even acknowledges that it's happening no one turns to look no one wants to think about it and as soon as it's over the brass band strikes up again and everyone goes about their business and it's like they are so in control of this place that not only will you not interfere with what is happening you won't even acknowledge that anything's happened you won't say that anything has happened and you know what why would you because nothing happened (laughs) i you know what what do you mean something happened you must be seeing things 
Maybe you need your medication increasing if you think something happened because nothing and nobody saw anything. Yeah, it's a world where things are deliberately, you know, so so unreal as to be things that people, you know, know to to keep quiet about them. It's just it's just terrifying this place. And the fact it looks the way it does. I mean the village as well. I mean it's just it's incredible to make that to make that choice artistically is really cool. I think. I mean, it, I think those are the those are the moments that elevate the prisoner above sort of a standard TV show that you can imagine would have done exactly the same storyline, but would have taken a very different and ultimately, I think, very boring set of choices and bring it to the screen. Calling number two, ready for you at the labour exchange. So then we're off to the labour exchange where number two escorts him to, on the face of it, find out what kind of job he might be good for in the village. But really it just seems to be another psychological test. They ask him to pointlessly put this tube into a square hole that turns into Mm. a round hole for no discernible reason. There's that wooden um, kind of spinning toy that's piled up on the desk and they start questioning him. Do you have any family illnesses? Do you, what do you want to be? What have you been? But it's it's the question when he asks him, do you have any politics? That gets to him and he suddenly snaps and he smashes the, the whole wooden structure down and storms off. And it's such a telling moment because I think the question, if somebody poses you the question, do you have any politics? It's such a pointed thing, but often what they're really asking is, do you have the wrong politics? Are you, mm. Do you have the politics that is not my politics? But again, I think if you flash forward to how the series ends, that can also be a reference to where Leo McKern's number two ends up mm. as well. So there's something very strange. I mean, there are the the people who are running the village. They know enough about him to know what is going to push his buttons. But it's... It's really interesting that despite the fact they know all these things and number two has everything in his little blue file and everything, they still don't know what the essence of of him is. And everything else they have are just facts, but they don't understand who he is. And it riles them so much. And yet it's clear that he knows and he he must be aware of this going into this, that they want to know something about him that is not a mere fact that somebody could tell them or something they could get through surveillance. Mm. It is about who he is as a person, um, which really changes how you view what the what the whole series is about. Yeah. And there's all these sort of banal but sinister posters around the Labour Exchange with phrases on them. One of them is of the people, by the people, for the people which seems completely out of place in a, in a place that is clearly being run without any freedom for the people who live there at all. One is, humour is an essential ingredient of a democratic society, <laughs> put up in a labour exchange in a non-democratic <laughs> village. A still tongue makes a happy life. That's horrible, that one. And questions are a burden to others, answer the prison to oneself. Mm. My goodness, basically to keep calm and carry on, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it's basically it. It's that if you if you were making that now, you would put a keep calm and carry on yeah. poster on the wall. Absolutely. I think. I mean, it's just it's just bizarre. I mean, this 
the bit which is that play on you know being a, a, a square peg in a round hole and things like that i mean it's hard to work out sometimes whether the village was really designed to be a general way of treating people like number six or as it sometimes seems it is just for him as the series plays out as well it is hard to know to what extent the village is is a you know is a personal prison for him and i love even that room i mean it does look it's bizarre this gray room with these strange arches and this weird green backgrounds i mean this is unlike anything i've seen before or since i mean it's you know it's not as garish as you'd see in sort of standard uh, 60s sci-fi it's just there's something kind of gothic about it but also futuristic and a bit and a bit weird um which i think is in keeping with the unusual mishmash of architectures that you see throughout paul marion as well so then he heads home and the maid is in there again he angrily sends her away and then this wall at the back opens and reveals an entire section of his home that he hadn't seen before. And this generic piped music starts coming from somewhere. <laughs> this very kind of soothing music. And what happens next is just one of my favourite sequences of this episode, of any episode, where he's exploring his house, angrily checking out everything. The food in the cupboards is all village labelled and he shakes it to see if it's real. The diary in his desk has already been filled in saying, arrived today, made very welcome. <laughs> it's just messing with him, always messing with him. And and this music keeps getting louder and louder. It's more and more agitating. I think as a lesson to people who make television today, you can learn a lot from Arrival. Mm. Because they give you a huge amount of information in this episode and almost all the exposition comes in wordless scenes it's just about this character exploring things and observing things seeing things experiencing them and that's what you get from it i mean you become number six in the village and i think it's incredible that they get so much out of these episodes you know again without dialogue you don't have to have exposition all the time you can just show what's going on and what he's experiencing and that can be everything you need as a viewer to get a sense of what's going on so he paces around he smashes the radio up to try and stop the music mm. you can't stop the music there's always music in the air yeah just like yeah exactly okay so as a warning <laughs> there will probably be many references to to twin peaks throughout these episodes they're huge fans of twin peaks as i said before and it's just I mean, I'm pretty certain that there are elements of the prisoner in so many different things. But as as Twin Peaks fans, it's great to watch this and kind of pick up on even the most tangential, obscure and often notably incorrect references that we're picking <laughs> up. But it's just it's just great. I mean, it's the only other show, I think, that does something similar to this, which is just to play with the format of television and what is possible. Um, but moments like that, I mean, they are they are quite interesting references that you see between uh, the two shows but that's for another another episode <laughs> and the moment he smashes the radio up you hear the tannoy announcement attention electrics department please go to number six where adjustment is needed yeah i mean there's nothing more frightening than that i mean the 
you know there are many elements of the prisoner that that are really hinting at the the idea of the surveillance state and big brother and things like that i mean it's it's interesting that at that moment when you realize that breaking the radio results in this announcement you you're aware that the whole time he's being watched and maybe even he hasn't sensed how much he's under observation but you realize that any idea of privacy is just gone in this world and i think you know it's one of those themes that recurs a lot through the series but actually is one of the reasons why the show remains timeless today yeah and there's there's something so unsettling about the banal way they describe it adjustment is needed what does that even mean you know attention he just smashed up the radio take a new one no it's adjustment is needed it's such a polite genteel way of of saying it yeah like any kind of um outburst or any kind of really strong emotion is immediately pared down to you know the most trite description Mm. uh, which undermines it and almost makes you even more angry because you're feeling that intensity and yet it's being described by this external voice as as something else which is so far from what it is you're trying to uh, you're trying to experience yeah this really made me think now of those buttons that you get on everyday household um, consumables like washing powder or milk or whatever that when it runs out you push the button and it automatically reorders it for you and then the next day someone from Amazon or wherever turns up at your door and hands you a package that's put it in it <laughs> and it's and it's automatic I'm sure I've read about fridges that know when you're out of things yeah. and order it for you and things like that I mean Patrick McGoo must would have been bloody horrified if he was alive now that people are just oh great look at this convenience i can get some more personal sent to me because i've run out and i can just push this little tab yeah it's convenience but the but the cost of it is too high yeah and and eventually it will be that your radio will know that it's broken and will order you a new radio (laughs) and and someone in a van will turn up at your door and hand you a new radio and that'll be it and then next time uh, you'll see him in the garden planting some flowers. <laughs> <laughs> so the maid comes back and they have this awkward conversation where she's effectively trying to double bluff, triple bluff him, I'm not entirely <laughs> sure what it is, into revealing something to her. And he either sees through it or he's just so naturally cautious that he won't trust anybody. Um, but it's the first instance of someone who seems like a villager but are they really working for the people who run the village or are they really just downtrodden wanting to get out or are they actually on the side you it's the first sense that you you cannot really know what anyone's intentions are you you can never really be 100 percent sure who someone's working for and i think as well given the and given some of the aspects of number six's behavior and also magoo and himself it's interesting that they choose to send a maid to try and uh, get information from him because uh, as we know from later episodes and again you know it's it's covered a lot in in uh, people who have who have uh, sort of written or made or made programs about about McGowan you know his he was not somebody who would be swayed by the presence of a young female who was put in front of him yeah so McGowan himself he didn't even like having on-screen romances with actresses within the context of the story 
because he felt that that was in some way being unfaithful to his wife. Mm. He he was so adamant about that that he, he wouldn't even let people write it into a, a show that he was in. Yeah. It, you know, he he wouldn't kiss a woman on screen because he was married, and therefore he wouldn't kiss another woman, and therefore he didn't want to kiss a woman mm. on screen. And he knows exactly why she's here, and they have thought, well, he may start to pity this woman and eventually reveal some secret. And in retrospect, you realise it's a stupid plan. You know, to, you know, to try it on on number six is pointless. But it does happen a few times. Mm. And that's also interesting, because it's almost like they... It's not that they keep doing certain things out of stupidity. It's that they think that they're wearing him down sometimes. And as much as they are playing him, he is playing them. Mm. And the whole conversation is watched from that giant screen in that control room with uh, number six and um, was he the, the controller the supervisor the supervisor yeah. and that they're, they're watching it and and again the, the, looking up at the giant screen it reminds me of the return um in uh, that gang's hideout where mr c goes yeah twin know? peaks yeah. yeah yeah it's i mean it's yeah again unnecessary twin peaks reference but, <laughs> but it is there i mean they watch people on these giant screens it's you know it's really cool and actually even like, i'm not sure what came first but even the character of the supervisor, I think that's his name. Um, he's very so. He was played by Peter Swanick, and you know he he pops up in quite a few episodes, observing what's going on, relaying information to and from Number Six, often in control of those people on that kind of weird, tilting seesaw contraption. He reminds me a lot of characters who would later appear. Um, in sort of the Marvel universe, because there was that character called I think it was the Watcher or something, who was that kind of bald alien who would just kind of be watching people all mm. the time. It's just strange. I mean, you know, there are there's something interesting about seeing some of these motifs pop up in you know in other genre products, and certainly you know in comic books, it's it's interesting that happened. And again, I think that the Watcher may have actually been a character who appeared in Marvel in the Stanley. Jack Kirby days, and actually Jack Kirby then would go on to have a go at doing, you know, prisoner, mm. prisoner comics as well. I don't know. So once he's got rid of the maid, the electrician turns up on his incredibly slow-moving tractor. Um, and if you've been to Port Marion, you know that there, there are really steep slopes that go up some of some of the roads, and you kind of imagine how on earth would a tractor like that make it up some of those roads. He uh, he just comes straight in and starts fixing everything and number six asks him about the tractor and about how slow moving it is and I just love it when he says in an emergency we walk <laughs> because why would, you, why would you take a form of transportation it was slower than walking um, but in an emergency they walk and when he says I feel like I walk myself and the door opens without him even going to open it it's just these these constant reminders to him that someone's watching someone's watching and paying such attention to even the minutiae of what he's saying that something as irrelevant as wanting to go for a walk is important enough that somebody somewhere is pushing a button to open the door for him that is how intense the scrutiny is that they're not even just looking for the important stuff they're paying attention to trivia to things that are just completely ephemeral so he goes for his walk and as he's wandering around through some of the green areas in the village he goes past a gardener and it's the same guy who was the electrician 
and he just does this wonderful double take of not understanding because how can he be in the house and be out here and it, it it for the first time puts this little idea into your head of the idea of doubles and clones and things like that that will become quite important later on yeah i mean yeah i think in in schizoid maps when it it really becomes obvious and it's it's clear there's just weird stuff going on in this place and again it starts to make you realize that in addition to some of the strange kooky underground layer stylings there's there's some really hardcore science fiction ideas which are kind of being smushed in with the the itc template of sort of spy fi action and so in the first of what come to be sort of many attempts <laughs> in the course of the series, but not as many as you might think, uh, number six tries to escape or make a break for it in some way. And it's it's clear it's a futile attempt without him knowing everything. And it's interesting how all his attempts change as, as he learns more about the village. But there's it's wonderful he's kind of scrambling through uh, sort of the, all the different kinds of terrain that you find in Port Mary. And he goes up to some of these sort of little outposts and buildings. You see these wonderful shots on those places. If you go to Port Mary and you can go to all these places, which is really cool and stand in all these places and look out and he's kind of keeping trying to keep himself hidden from uh one of the mini mokes going by but then you hear the roar you see rover is around and it's and then it, it continually is cutting back to uh the supervisor who's in the control room and again you have the two people on that bizarre seesaw thing and it, even that's kind of weird because i know you know um, we were talking about the the fairy tale stuff and the, and the nursery school style imagery and it's interesting that a seesaw is really appearing mm. in this whole thing and i also noted it i mean watching it again that when the supervisor on the phone saying that you know number six is about to make an escape there's a strange set of constellations on on the wall and I, and I i can't figure out why it's there i mean it's it's a bizarre it's a very very bizarre thing to have on the wall of that control room but they're all watching number six who clearly thinks he's in the middle of nowhere so maybe he's not being watched and you have these very hokey moments where you have these <laughs> sort of statues which are rotating around with their eyes clearly you know with cameras that are watching him as he's uh, migrating yeah, they're, through, they're, the, through the woods yeah they're almost sort of scooby-doo statues aren't they yeah. with the eyes following around and uh, he eventually gets to uh, the beach and he's making a run for it and at that point we have you know some cool crazy music starts as uh the village sends out one of its little sort of mini jeep things out uh, with a couple of them who are designed to uh, bring number six in yeah and, and you get a, a sort of action sequence with some some fisty cuffs and some tumbling around on the beach as he attempts to take over the car <laughs> it's no more savage than that <laughs> and this is clearly an injection of a bit of action because all these popular itc shows at the time you know that they wanted action and adventure in it and a bit of humor and so as well as an escape attempt it's an injection of of action and upping the pace a little bit it's the kind of thing that people maybe were expecting to get from something which in so many ways resembled danger man Mm. which would have had these these little set pieces in it yeah and it's interesting that you know it's as much a show that does have those conventions in it as one that completely throws out the others you know it's there just to to have it in there and and there are lots of these little fight scenes that happen occasionally but it's interesting that you know there are these choices where 
certain relatively formulaic tropes that you would have gotten in ITC shows at the time are thrown in and other times when he dispenses with what would have been considered the formula for how you make TV uh, in the late 60s. And where the people failed, Rover succeeds in ending his escape attempt. Despite a solid punch to Rover, <laughs> which is ultimately futile by, <laughs> by number six. It's like, how'd you hit a balloon? Well, you know. Uh, I think it just made him even more angry. <laughs> <laughs> Don't anger Rover, it's a bad idea. But he, he ends up unconscious and... Uh, After it bounces on him a few times. Yeah. And some people turn up in a, an ambulance to carry him off to hospital. So waking up in the hospital, he's now in some pyjamas. His clothes have gone. He's told his clothes have been burnt. And again, this suggests there is something deeply unnatural about Rover that the fact that Rover has come into contact with his clothes and now his clothes have been burned, like they're contaminated with something. Mm. It's just, the idea of what Rover is just creeps me out. Um, and this guy Cobb is in his hospital ward, who he clearly knows from whatever his job with the government was before he wound up there. Well, to be fair, it was Paul Eddington, so he was in the government in Yesminster. <laughs> <laughs> And it's interesting that he immediately trusts Cobb and worries about him. There's not yet a question in his mind about whether people from his past might be in on things more than they seem. Yeah, and certainly a few episodes down the line, he would he would never have trusted Cobb like he does here. Yeah. But he gets taken off to get a, a medical... And there's that incredible shot when he walks past that corridor with the purple light and he looks in and there's all the people sitting on the floor with blindfolds and headphones and you get another nursery rhyme mm. motif in the music, boys and girls come out to play. Mm. It's just it's just messed up. That <laughs> shot is messed up. What the hell is going on in there? Yeah. It's strange. It's this, it's this place where these kind of experiments are taking place. I mean, that's not like a medical treatment, although they claim it is. This is something which is designed as an exhibition of the power that they have. These are things being performed on citizens. It's unclear if they're willing or not in these things. But it just shows that there are weird things that that are being done under the guise of being in a hospital. And there's something very strange about how these things are just happening. And, you know... There's a there's a medical professional who is just talking about it as if there is some justifiable reason for it, even though it seems very unnatural. And again, it places the this kind of treatment outside of the realm of what you think would have been happening in the real world at the same time. So it's clear that there are strange experiments going on here, which ties into just the, the general weirdness of what's going on. Mm. And when he goes into what looks like a sort of examination room, operating room, something for a checkup, why is there a lava lamp in there? I don't get it. Is the lava lamp where the camera is? It was the 60s. Everyone had lava lamps. <laughs> That's the one thing which does probably connect to the world that he's used to. <laughs> are, yeah, are the lava lamps. I mean, his clothes are gone. You know, his his house is gone. His life is gone. But he's probably thinking, eh, lava lamp. <laughs> I recognise that. 
And then when they leave again to go back to the ward and he looks back through the window into that purple corridor and it's it's that guy, that bald guy who he saw walking past before looking at an egg on a fountain and going... Oh, oh man. It's just weird. It's it's so strange. And it's these moments which are... They're not just wrong-footing number six. They're wrong-footing the audience. They're making you realise this is, this is not a conventional show. Um, it's not something where it's going to follow any line of logic, even by the standards of, you know, 19... 19- 60 science fiction shows it's it's weird in conceit and it's very weird in its execution as well yeah it's it's like some kind of i know some kind of telekinesis experiment is he trying to make the egg float on the water i i don't know yeah but it's a wonderful gif <laughs> <laughs> and then he gets back to the ward and is told by a panicked orderly that Cobb has apparently jumped out of the window and has died. Apparently. <laughs> Allegedly. <laughs> Mysteriously jumped out of the window. As he leaves the hospital, he's given his new uh, ID cards and his new sort of documents that allow him to live and be part of the village. And notably, he's in his familiar village gear, which is, you know, the his blue polo neck, his piped blazer, all these iconic things. He has his little badge as well with his uh, penny farthing with the number six on it. He takes his sort of straw boater hat off. He takes the badge off and everything. But, you know, you see him in those clothes and, you know, that's what's truly iconic about Magoo and as, as the prisoner. And he gets in this taxi, driving away, and then he decides that he wants to know what's going on. And he thinks it's just as easy as jumping out and going straight to number two's house to find out what's going on. And again, it's one of those moments which is cool also because it's a subtle thing. But the fact that uh, when he goes up to doors and they just open. It happened earlier on, you know, when he, he's like, I might, you know, I might go for a walk when the electrician is there. And the door just opens as well. It's wonderful how the place, it just responds to him. But you almost think, you know what, if the villagers heeding your requests, maybe they're the wrong things to be doing. <laughs> and of course, he goes to see number two. And he meets number two, but it's not number two. Yeah. When you see me again, it will not be me. Yeah, more Twin Peaks references. Getting tenuous, but getting used <laughs> to it. Um, yeah, it's it's great. I mean, it's it's just as iconic as uh, as the regenerations in Doctor Who. It's the fact that you know the person seemingly in charge can change at a moment's notice. You don't. You have no idea where they've gone to or. Or why the new one is here, you know, what the situation is that's has resulted. And there are a couple of situations where there are repeated number twos uh, in the prisoner, but here it's very bizarre. I mean, George Baker is sitting in the chair, and it come again, it completely wrong foots you. It's not going to be a show about McGowan as number six versus Guy Dolman as a number two. It's it's about number six versus the village, and the face of the village is going to change. It's an ever changing representation of, of the authority and you can never pin it down you could you know there is no person who you can go and speak to it'll always be somebody else it's like you know trying to find out who's in charge becomes something which is also designed to break him yeah it, it makes it impossible for him to get into any kind of groove with any of these number twos 
you know, he, he can't build any kind of rapport with them. He can't, it, if he thinks he's got a handle on their personality and how he might be able to get at them, suddenly it's somebody else. Mm. It, it makes it impossible for him to, to, to gain a foothold into number two's psyche, I suppose, yeah. if number two can just change like that. Mm. And what I like is that when he's speaking to number two here, trying to find out exactly what's going on, he asked to speak to number one. Now, this is obviously a very important concept behind the whole show, but it was only watching it recently that I realised that you know he knows he's speaking to number two. He knows that, or he suspects that the person who's actually in charge is somebody referred to as number one. And yet, he's a smart guy. I do wonder if, as number six, he's aware of how important he is. I mean, there are all these numbers being thrown around. We see a few characters, I think number 66 is is in this yeah and and number nine is the the woman who we haven't met yet yeah so these characters appear but it's unclear how the uh number really ranks them but with number six i mean it's it's strange i mean you have you have number six number two and you want to speak to number one so if there is a hierarchy that exists you you know he must be aware that he's important and it does it make you feel that again the village is something designed around breaking him rather than being a general location as as strange as that may seem or maybe the village is different things to different people and george baker's number two is noticeably very different in tone i mean all the number twos are very different but this guy is he's there to break him by force Mm. i think he's very aggressive he he he's more threatening and talking about what he knows about him the information he wants and number six is forced to realize that it it's probably more complicated than he could have ever imagined and one really nice detail that again i only noticed recently was when you see number two sitting in that chair you also see the penny farthing behind him but the chair he's in which is that kind of round concave uh kind of dome that he sits in it's really interesting that that takes the place of the big wheel on the penny farthing and you just see the small one coming out to the side so it looks almost like he is i mean visually he is placed in that big wheel of the penny farthing it's great to have that motif continued through but i think it says a lot that that is the you know that's the uh, the logo of what's going on by the village oppressors and and he is literally that well, placed in that big front wheel that you see in the penny farthing, which you see all over the place. So he heads home and he sees the funeral procession coming past for Cog. It's a very cheerful funeral procession. It's the last <laughs> band again. Um, but he follows it and he sees a woman uh, who is number nine watching the funeral from a distance and is visibly upset. So he goes to talk to her. And he isn't sure if he can trust her. She isn't sure if she can trust him. He explains that he knew Cobb before they were in the village. And he's clearly trying to figure out whether or not he should say any more to her. Mm. And I've just realised that Cobb isn't a number. Ah, yeah, that's true. Everybody else is a number. We we don't know what her name is. She's just number nine. Yeah. We don't know who what number two's name is nobody would even know what number six's name is and yet Cobb is never referred to as a number he just gets referred to as Cobb that's interesting actually I'd never yeah because it's such a it's a village thing isn't it that everyone is is known by their numbers and he notably is referred to 
as Cobb. And actually, there's it's interesting that in those exchanges, there's never a situation where Cobb or number nine refer to number six by name as well. Mm. So yeah, it's it's very odd. And maybe it's the first indication that he's not somebody who should be trusted as well. Because the only other characters you see, I think, who have names are the ones who are uh, external to yeah. the village. I mean, so later in the series, there are situations where external characters make appearance in the village and they and they do have names or there are characters in the village who reference external characters who have proper names. But yeah, Cobb is, uh, Cobb, is Cobb. <laughs> he is no number. So, but Cobb is being buried in the graveyard on the beach that we saw from the helicopter ride earlier. So they agree to meet later on at the bandstand to uh, discuss Cobb-related information, I suppose. (laughs) Down by the bandstand, they have a sort of covert conversation where Number 9 reveals that she and Cobb had a plan to escape. And she details some of the plan to number six that it involved being able to get access to the helicopter. Which seems to function as a, as a supply helicopter, isn't it? It's coming in and out each day. Yeah. yeah. And she had got hold of the electropass that would enable you to get through the security system, which she got from the previous pilot. And again, he seems to not be entirely sure whether or not she's on the level. And number nine is seen leaving and later conversing with number two uh, in the house with the Green Dome. Again, as you said earlier, number two never refers to Cobb as a number. Yeah. Even when discussing Cobb with number nine, he calls him Cobb, which he shouldn't do because nobody ever refers to villages by anything other than their number. Yeah. So so this is an unnatural thing to do and it, sh- it should be ringing alarm bells about Cobb hmm. to everyone. But there's not long left, so those <laughs> things will play out. Um, yeah, and then we we cut back to uh, the area, which I think is, well, in Port Marion, I, I, I'm thinking about it now, it's the area outside the hotel, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, where number six is playing a game of chess with number 66, who's the admiral. Yeah, who's uh, dressed like Dennis the Menace. <laughs> yeah, so maybe it's a place where uh, <laughs> where old comic book characters from uh, from British comic history are also retired, as well as spies and secret agents as well. <laughs> he does look like Dennis the Menace in the future. And he's keeping an eye out for the helicopter and also waiting for his rendezvous with number nine on the stone boat while playing chess. Hmm. And again, I think the chess motifs become, you know, they... They appear so many times throughout the series, but it's interesting that so many seeds are, are sown in this pilot episode. It sets up so many different aspects of the show. Yeah. And I'll throw in one last reference to Twin Peaks. I suppose, you know, that show, especially in its second series, had a tremendous amount of fun playing with chess imagery anyway. Mm. Because the character of Windermill was a chess player, Pete Martell was a chess player, and there was that game that was being played between Cooper and Windermill throughout that. So, yeah, again, it's interesting that they use chess in both shows. Tangential, though it may be. (laughs) (laughs) And I I just love the absurdity of the stone boat that is permanently (laughs) just there. A a boat that goes nowhere, a boat that has no purpose other than to look like a boat. (laughs) And just the, the, uh, the admiral saying, she's great in any weather, I've sailed her many a time. (laughs) It's like, has... Has he has he genuinely started to lose his mind? Hmm. 
has he been in the village so long that he starts to think it really is a boat? Is he is he imagining it? Has somebody made him think that he's been sailing on it? Yeah, I think it's part of the idea that the village is messing with people's perceptions of things. And you can't read either way whether he's part of the conspiracy or a broken prisoner himself who imagines these things. It's Yeah, it's... It's wonderful how there's just so much ambiguity in every character. Yeah. And he starts humming, what do we do with the drunken sailor? And then the score picks up the song where he leaves Mm. off. Everything is just in harmony. Yeah. So on board the stone boat, uh, which is bizarre because we've sat in that boat before. Yeah. Number nine gives number six a watch, which is the Electra Pass. And tells him that she's not going with him. She wasn't planning to leave if Cobb wasn't going to leave. And number six confronts her about the fact that he knows that she was going to see number two. Mm. He doesn't trust her. She says, well, yes, I am working for them, but I also didn't betray you and I didn't betray Cobb. And you see that he he's not sure whether to trust her or not, but he goes for it anyway. He decides mm. to just try and leave. So he goes to the helicopter. He gets in fine, manages to get past Rover with the watch, takes off everything seems all right but number two is watching this all play out quite serenely he's got a big grin on his face yeah it's this idea that they for that moment he must realize that he predicted what number six would do but the ultimate outcome of everything is is not that uh you know number six reveals his secrets or anything like that but there's a moment where you can see that glint in number two's eye, and it happens repeatedly when, when occasionally a number two thinks they've thinks they've cracked him, but it never quite happens. Yeah. Yeah. So number nine is watching the helicopter go, and she's starting to play chess with the admiral, <laughs> and the admiral has that wonderful comment, "We're all pawns, my dear," and the realization dawns on her that they knew what she was doing mm. and they were using her as as part of a wider game. Mm. And we cut back to number six, who is uh, manoeuvring the helicopter away. But as as he's starting to sort of, you know, get away, he realises that the controls are, are no longer under his control. Cuts back to number two, who's delighting in the fact that they are remote controlling uh, the helicopter as it's returned back to the village. And you realise that, you know, this has all been a ploy. Everyone has been playing all these characters to to give number six that feeling that he can get out. But ultimately knowing that they're fully in control and making him aware that, you know, it's going to take a lot more uh, than this for him to try and get away. And they have many means of breaking him. And even, even somebody who was so dismissive, for example, of the maid earlier on, not trusting her. He was at this point in the story able to be, you know, convinced that maybe there was a chance that he could get away. Yeah, and that's when you see that Cobb is alive and well and hanging out with Number Two, yeah. and off to see his new masters, whoever they may be. Mm. And you realise that of of all the people that he's trusted or not trusted in the episode, Number Six, he didn't trust the maid. He was right not to. Mm. He did trust Cobb, but he was wrong to. Mm. And he wasn't sure if he could trust number nine, but he decided to. But it turned out to be futile whether he trusted her or not because it was never going to result in him being able to get yeah. away. It's, it's just completely mind-bending. Mm. And it's it's part of that 
feeling that they are playing games with him and it will take a lot for him to figure it out but I think they're already hinting at it now with this this chess imagery which is coming into the game I mean it's it's about thinking several steps ahead all the time in the prisoner it's never about what your next move is going to be but what your move five goes from now is going to be and it's remarkable how that how that's starting to play out yeah and as number two and Cobb say their goodbyes number two says au revoir and Cobb says Afridazane which again is bringing back this this international element of who's actually in control here but this being the 60s Afridazane could mean both West and East Germany Mm. so it's just added ambiguity so then the closing shot is of uh, the butler with his umbrella walking towards the camera and then that shot of Port Marion as Patrick McGowan's face zooms <laughs> zooms out towards the screen and the bars come over and the prisoner is kept prisoner once again <laughs> in the village <laughs> So in a podcast episode, which is now almost twice as long as the episode we were watching actually was. (laughs) Um, But again, I think it's mainly been things that we'll only talk about, you know, here just because it's the excitement of arrival. There's all the wonderful new concepts which we're um, experiencing whilst we're watching this. Um, So what we've been talking about is the broadcast episode of arrival. Some of you who follow us on Twitter and Facebook will have known that um, a few weeks back we were actually planning some of these things and we actually sat down to watch uh the alternate version of arrival which only ever existed as a really poor quality copy on one of the old dvd releases but the new blu-rays have a wonderfully cleaned up version of it and the alternate version of arrival it follows the same structure as the episode that's aired there are a few differences some of them minor some of them big i mean there are slightly extended versions of certain sequences the music is different. You know, it has a different theme tune that plays uh, over the end credits. Um, but there are some really striking differences as well that take place in the alternate version, which I suppose aren't canon because they don't appear in the actual episode. But they're very interesting choices that were made that were ultimately cut from the final episode. Yeah. So you've got different opening music, which is really strange to hear now because mm. the, the real opening music is so iconic little bit of a different edit in the opening credits the sequence where number six wakes up for the first time in the village is a bit longer mm. so it isn't it, the cut is a little bit different and that the initial taxi ride is longer for me that the first main difference and one and the big difference is that when you first see rover when he first appears by the fountain it doesn't chase down and kill someone so later on when Rover attacks Number Six on the beach when he's making his getaway, you haven't actually seen Rover harm anyone yet. It's been a threatening presence, but you haven't seen the horror of what it can do the way that it smothers people yet. And I think I think it works better having that earlier attack in there to really make you aware of exactly what it is that Rover can do. Yeah, and the other really big difference is what takes place after the end credits mm. as well. So the, I suppose, traditional ending for the credits is, you know, all the names of all the uh, cast and crew of the screen and you see this penny farthing being assembled uh, as an image. 
what happens in the alternate version is very strange. So when you have the small wheel and the big wheel, it then dissolves into, is it Earth and then another planet? It's like Earth and a, a sort of a galaxy next yeah. to it that expands. Which again ties into the, the strange constellation imagery which exists in uh, the supervisor's control room. It zooms in on the Earth. It's very bizarre. And as it gets closer, and obviously it's this big circle in the middle of the screen, then it kind of changes to the word pop. <laughs> like white letters on a big red circle or balloon or something. It's very bizarre. And that's just there. And it ends. Um, yes. <laughs> that's what happens in the, at the end of the of the alternate version of Rock. It's very bizarre. I don't really know what what that is. I mean, it's such a... Well, I suppose it's a very 60s kind of ending. Mm. And, but I don't understand the what the reference is, other than, you know, other than the word pop also referring to Pop Goes the Weasel, which appears, yeah. you know, in, um, uh, in the show, both in the music and also later on um, in Once Upon a Time. Yeah. It's very bizarre, but it's a very, it's a very strange, strange ending. And actually in an era when nowadays all TV production copies have quite interesting closing little bits of video that end like a, a specific production company or something. I mean, it's it's one hell of a weird way to end an episode. Mm. But I don't really know how it ties into everything. But, you know, it's very trippy. Yeah. And it was never meant to be broadcast. It was like an early cut. Yeah. That was just sort of screened to industry people, I think. Mm. Although I think it was accidentally broadcast once on PBS in the 70s or something <laughs> like that, which must have really confused anyone who had watched it in the 60s, thought they remembered it. And then watched this episode again and thought, I don't remember it being like this. I thought the balloon killed someone. What's this pop thing at the end? It must have been really trippy. Information. Information. So we'd like to thank you for joining us for our episode of the Tally Ho, all about episode one of The Prisoner, Arrival. Um, before we sign off, there are a few things that we'd like to talk about. The first is a message from a good friend of the podcast. Uh, it's Rick Davey from The Unmutual, and he has some news about what's going on in the world of The Prisoner. Hi, this is Rick Davey of The Unmutual website at www.theunmutual.co.uk with all the latest news from the world of The Prisoner. The 50 Years of the Prisoner event held at Elstree Studios on January 21st was a huge success. The best attended Prisoner event since 1998 saw special guest interviews and screenings, and we're pleased to announce that a DVD of the event has been confirmed for later in the year. Profits from this will be donated to Tico Bay Hospice, in addition to the several hundred pounds raised at the event itself. Similar events are planned for later this year. Keep an eye on the Unmutual website for details. In other event news, the first of this year's free-to-attend Prisoner and Danger Man location tour date has been confirmed for Sunday, April the 15th. David Lally is your guide to locations from both series. And September the 9th sees the Eternal Village event take place in Seattle, USA, with confirmed guests including schizoid actress Jane Merrow, Professor Valerie Ziegler of DePaul University, and myself. In other news, Titan Comics have released more details concerning their forthcoming series of Prisoner Comics. Issue 1 will have several cover variants to choose from, from various artists 
and a deluxe book will include Jack Kirby's uncompleted The Prisoner comic. The book Playboy, Spies and Private Eyes, inspired by ITC, is now on sale from Quet Media Limited in aid of the Born Free Foundation. The book, written by an array of writers looking at each of ITC's action-adventure series, includes four Danger Man chapters, four The Prisoner chapters, a foreword by Annette Andre, and an afterword by Elaine Spooner, daughter of Dennis Spooner. Finally, two magazines are on sale in the UK with interesting prisoner content this month. The new issue of Infinity magazine features a four-page feature on Danger Man, written by prisoner historian Robert Fairclough, and Classic and Sports Car magazine features a feature on the original Minimoke, which was recently restored in time for the 50th anniversary of the prisoner. For more details regarding all these news items, please visit www.theunmutual.co.uk. Join me for all the latest news from the world of the prisoner on the next Tally Ho podcast. Until then, be seeing you. So we'd like to thank The Unmutual for all the great work they do in the prisoner fandom. You can find them on Twitter at Unmutual website and the website is theunmutual.co.uk. So our next episode, obviously we're going to be looking at the chimes of Big Ben, but we've actually got a special episode that's going to be coming up before then. We recently had the great pleasure of spending an afternoon with Chris Rodley, the documentary filmmaker behind In My Mind, and also the author of Lynch on Lynch, among other things. And we spoke with Chris at great length about the making of In My Mind, about his interviews with Patrick McGowan, about his thoughts on The Prisoner, and also about his thoughts on David Lynch and Twin Peaks as well. And so there's going to be two special episodes coming out. One of them is going to be on the Tally Ho, that's going to be more the Patrick McGowan prisoner-focused parts of our talk with Chris Rodley, and that's coming out in a few days. And then shortly after that, part two is going to be coming out on our Twin Peaks stream, which is called Time for Cherry Pie and Coffee. But the two conversations are very much intertwined, and we hope that people will enjoy listening to both of them, whether you're into the prisoner or Twin Peaks or both. There's so much to learn from both of these uh, episodes. I mean, they were really fantastic ones to record. It was great to talk to Chris. And I think if you're a fan of you know, either The Prisoner or Twin Peaks and the work of David Lynch, or you're just interested in television and film and sort of some of the behind-the-scenes stuff that goes on, from somebody who has really had a tremendous career you know, interacting with some tremendous names and has some wonderful stories as well and some great insights and thoughts on on both past and current TV and filmmaking. Um, really check those episodes out when they come out. So that's The Tally Ho and also Time for Cherry Pie and Coffee. And both of those podcasts, as all of our podcasts are, are on our main podcast feed, which is Time for Cakes and Ale. So what we'd love you to do would be to Uh, Follow us on Twitter at TFCAA. Find us on Facebook, which is Time for Cakes and Ale. Go to our website, www.timeforcakesandale.com. And what you can do is, through those three means, you can uh, find out about what we're doing. You can keep up to date with when these new episodes are out. And you can also subscribe to our podcast feed as well. You can do that through iTunes. You can do it through the website. There are loads of different ways. So please do follow us along for this journey into the world of The Prisoner as part of the Tally Ho. And for now, signing off. Be Be seeing seeing you. you.